0: here. Our study is Covenant Nurture and Catechetical Instruction. What a mouthful. Really, I kid you not, we, uh, we almost don't need to say anything. We just had it just now, this last seven minutes. There they are. As Mama Ragu says of her spaghetti sauce, it's in there. Well, it's in there. We got them. They're there. It's wonderful. Wonderful. It's a thrill for me to sit over there and and see those precious children of the covenant rise up and walk out with their teachers happily. Your parents are doing a great job. They want to be here. They're they're, they're happy here. I, I know they can be naughty. I was a kid once. I stood in the corner altogether too many times at Christian school, but uh, the fathers unto the children, huh? God is faithful unto a thousand generations, amen. Runner. So I don't know what I'm doing up here. <laughs> Covenant nurture is down there, not up here, and it's it's out there with those dear children. But let me tell you what happened on Sunday. I I just can't not share this with you because I'm still vibrating over it. It was so exciting. As you know, I'm regional home missionary for the Presbytery of Philadelphia, and as such, my job is to try to see Orthodox Presbyterian churches started in uh, many different places in our regional church area, which is the 42 counties of eastern Pennsylvania and the three counties of Delaware, so that's 45 counties. Uh, We already have 28 churches in the Philadelphia Presbytery, But we have four mission works in Pottstown, Broomall, Perkesey, and Yardley. Yardley is the uh, mission work where I'm presently serving as pulpit supply for the the time being. Larry Wilson, General Secretary of Christian Education, is also helping in that work uh, because we have two worship services, of course, on the Lord's Day, and uh, I need help and Larry is doing some preaching. We even have a summer intern this summer, Jeff Waddington, who is the bookstore manager for Westminster Theological Seminary, and he's a licentiate of our presbytery, and he is uh, having a summer internship. So uh, next Sunday, not this coming Sunday, but the one after when I'm away at General Assembly and Larry Wilson is away at General Assembly, Jeff has two sermons to preach at Yardley. Uh, Pray for us at Yardley. We have only about 25 people but they're very uh, united, they're very enthusiastic, and we want to see an Orthodox Presbyterian church. It's sort of near Trenton, New Jersey. You may know that as the capital of New Jersey. It's uh, uh, north, just north of Philadelphia, about uh, 30 miles. And uh, it's an exciting uh, work. We meet in the community center, a beautiful building, uh, which the Lord provided for us, and that's another story. But uh, that's Yardley. And uh, then uh, there are two other Bible studies that I ha- have the privilege of, of working with. One in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, that's west of Harrisburg, where we have four families that are meeting weekly uh, for Bible study and prayer, and we're sending out uh, postal uh, notes to various uh, email address, uh, various uh, uh, zip codes and we're seeking to uh, get an Orthodox Presbyterian church started in Carlisle. But the one I want to tell you about, what happened last Sunday, the day before yesterday, was in Wilkes-Barre. Wilkes-Barre is near Scranton, and it's in northeast Pennsylvania. And we had a mission work there back in the uh, 70s when I was pastor at uh, Trinity Church Hatboro. I preached up there a number of times, helping uh, Laverne Rosenberger, who was the church planter. Ultimately, that, that, uh, that work did not... Uh, progress to become an organized church, which is another story. But uh, now there are a couple of families there that want to see an OP church starting, and we've had a Bible study there now for some time, and it appears to be the Lord's will that there not be an Orthodox Presbyterian church established in Wilkes-Barre, but we may get one. Anyway, there is a church called the Susquehanna Bible Fellowship Church, And it's an independent church. They're anti-Pado-Baptist. They're Arminian. And they're uh, anti-Calvin. They're dispensational. Everything that we aren't. Except the minister is everything that we are. Because he made the mistake of reading his Bible lately. And he has become totally Reformed. I mean, the whole nine yards. And he is right now in the process of having his examinations, Roger, to be received as a minister of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. His name is Edward Geyer. And he has a wife and uh, six children, one married. And the five oldest children have all been baptized by immersion in so-called believer's baptism. I, I don't like that term. Let me put it this way. They're baptized. Okay? But not Josiah. Josiah is four. And every time I went to Wilkes-Barre... To meet with the little group that we had to try to get an OP church started and I met Ed Geier in the process of that and he would come to our little meeting because he was interested in us by the way he found out of me because he went to a bookstore and the guy that had the bookstore had known that I was there in Wilkes-Barre and he told Ed you ought to look up Tom Tyson next thing I had an email next thing I'm in his house And every time I go to the Bible study, the guys have me over for dinner. But before dinner, I'm sitting on the sofa having fun with little Josiah. And he was showing me all his latest things with Lego and stuff like that. And I really got to know the little guy, a sweet little boy. On Sunday, I baptized him. And yeah, that is covenant theology. That is covenant nurture. That is that is far more wonderful than anything that I could say to you today. Of course, the things I'm going to say to you from the Word of God are the most wonderful, but anything of me that I can say by way of exegesis or interpretation or structure or anything doesn't compare with what happened on Sunday. Because there the congregation was gathered and they don't even believe it yet. That's the beauty. And I preached, Roger, I preached on Romans 6, 3 through 5. And I said, this is the most important text in the New Testament on baptism. We're not even going to have to talk about how much water. And we don't have to talk about who, what is the age of the people that are being baptized. Let's just talk about what Jesus said he wanted done in his church and what it means. There it is in Romans 6, 3 through 5. And I preached that and the people listened. They listened and they heard what baptism is and then they saw the Geyers came up and stood there with with Josiah. And Mr. Geyer held the bowl. It was a nice big bowl with lots of water. And I I dipped my hand down there as far as I could go and got as much water as I possibly could. Just brought the whole thing up, splashing and dripping, ran it over Josiah's head. And everyone saw the water. Josiah just stood there and he just looked up at me and I was his friend. He knew me. And Josiah was branded and identified. He to God. I love that little boy. My wife was there. Yardley Church was praying for that congregation. Will you pray for Susquehanna Bible Fellowship Church? Little do they know <laughs> what they're going to be hearing, what they have been hearing, and what they're going to continue to be hearing. But Ed's going to have... Um, a series of prayer meeting studies on Presbyterianism. He's already been preaching on, on, the, on the doctrines of grace and, and on, on the, uh, our eschatology and all these other things. He hasn't touched our, our polity yet. And so he's not going to do that in church. He's going to do that at prayer meeting. He's going to tell them about what's good about Presbyterianism and why, it, why, it, why it's a little closer to what the Bible says, the way churches ought to run themselves and do things. So, The reason why I'm telling you things is not because I don't want to get going on what I'm supposed to talk about today, but because that is what I'm supposed to talk about today. And if I were to drop dead right now, you would have had a lesson this morning in covenant nurture. Remember little Josiah Geyer, child of the covenant. All right. Why have a seminar (laughs) on covenant family nurture and teaching because of all those kids because god made makes babies and because god made a lot of orthodox presbyterian babies here and when he made them they were his when he made them and he gave to them you i know if you watch tv was channel 26 on cable which has always all of these tear-jerking stories about the families fighting over who gets the kid. Do you ever see those, those dramas? You know, there's something to do with adoption or a so, uh, test tube baby or something. And the whole premise of those stories is who gets to have the child. And I tear my hair out, what's left of it, if ever I see those programs, because I say, help! You got it backward! Parents don't have children. Children have parents. God makes babies, and God puts many of those babies into the arms of parents. Those parents He gives to those children who are His. Now, I know I'm exaggerating, and it's somewhat hyperbolic, but it's for a purpose. I think it's true what I've said. There's another side of it, too. You also may speak of having your little son or daughter. It's all right. I won't rebuke you if you say that. But you understand the point I'm trying to make. God has given them to you. And right now we've got a lot of in loco parentis going on around this uh, campground. And all of those wonderful teachers that are giving up the privilege of being able to be here and learn themselves, they're going out there in your place uh, to... uh, to be given to those dear little ones and bigger ones. So many teenagers... Are the teenagers here? All teens, raise your hands. Yes, one, two, three. Bunches, great. You're here, and and many of you have made public profession of faith in Christ and are communicant members of the church. Now you are taking your position more and more as, as leaders, eventually as marital partners and parents yourselves, to be given more covenant children so that we will be having covenant nurture and catechism until Jesus returns. That's why I, I like to teach in uh, MTI, OPC, the catechetics class. How many of you have taken that course? Anybody here has taken the course? Nobody yet? We've only had it four years, and I think I've taught uh, about 25 men, licentiates, ministers, men under care in the OPC. Just don't have anybody here now. And uh, it's one of the best times of the year for me. It's in the spring, and uh, this last spring uh, we just had seven. I had seven uh, students in my catechetics class and for 14 weeks, they read assigned uh, material and send me emails to write a page of a response to questions I give them, and then I write emails back to them and tell them what I think about what they wrote. And then at the end of the 14 weeks, we all gathered together in Willow Grove at the uh, denominational offices of the OPC, and for two days, nine hours, uh, I, I got a chance to meet with them, and we talked about these things that we're going to be talking about in this first session uh, of uh, this week, if I ever stop the introduction and actually get into it. And uh, uh, I, I, love, I love teaching uh, MTI. It's, uh, it, to me, that's where it's at. That, that, that's, I, I like being regional home missionary. That's exciting, too, but that's very challenging. And uh, I need your prayers. This is a new thing to me. I've, I've been a pastor all my life, except for this little stint as General Secretary of Christian Ed, But basically I'm a pastor and and now I'm a pastor but I don't know quite who my flock is. (laughs) I got people here and there and uh, it's it's a little disconcerting sometimes. It's not quite as solid. I've been pastor in churches with very solid large sessions and I can sort of sleep and relax and just pray and thank God for the fact that the shop is open and things are rolling and uh, I've had happy pastorates. But um, this... You see, in this Catechetics course, I can help these men to see how critical it is that the children learn the great deeds of God. Historia Salutis, the history of salvation. What God has done in Jesus Christ, the great transactions of grace that He has accomplished. That's what the Israelites did through the Old Testament, the covenant of promise. They were telling their children what the Lord had done. That's what Passover was. And uh, we have to do it too. And We must have catechetical instruction in our churches and in our homes. So why have a seminar on the covenant family, nurture, and teaching? How can we not? Would be a better question. Now, what we intend to cover this week, in this first session each morning, is... uh, First of all, the covenant of grace, which we're going to look at today, because if we're going to talk about covenant nurture, we have to know what covenant. And so we're going to talk about the covenant of grace. That's the one we're in now. And that's the one that uh, we need to nurture our children in. Then uh, tomorrow we're going to look at covenant nurture and our baptismal vows. Then on uh, Thursday we'll be looking at uh, why teach our covenant children. And then Friday, at last, what do we teach our covenant children? So that's the, uh, that's the layout, lay of the land uh, before us. So I'm going to have to move rather quickly today in order to be able to cover this material. And there are quite a few verses here in your material. The, all the references are there, not the words of the verses, because you've got your own Bibles, you can look them up. And uh, I'm not going to refer to all of these verses, but selected ones to make the point In many cases, there are two or three verses in parentheses, references in parentheses. I'll probably just pick the first one, but you need to look at the others uh, at your leisure at home. The covenant of grace. Oh, by the way, how we're going to proceed, it's going to be a combination of lecture, provocative, I hope, questioning, and open discussion. And if I will ever stop talking before 9.30, uh, I hope to have time there to ask a few questions at the end of this section and let you uh, reflect openly and orally upon those matters. All right, the covenant of grace. There is only one gospel. That's the first point. There is only one gospel. Only one way of salvation is revealed to us by God. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, set forth in the Scriptures. We had a church in Columbia, Maryland. It's one of we have one. It's one of the largest churches in our denomination. And some years ago, they were worshipping in the community center of Columbia. Columbia is a planned city in Maryland. And the fathers of the city had a large building, which they then made available to the people of Columbia for various purposes, including religious purposes. And together with the Jewish people who used it on Saturday and the Baptists who used it on Sunday morning or something, we used it Sunday afternoon. We used it, in other words, in conjunction with other groups too. And then it happened. The fathers of Columbia found out that Al Harris, the pastor there, had the temerity and the nerve to preach that Jesus Christ was the only Savior of sinners. Amen, indeed. And when they heard that, they said, you can't say that in a community center. And so they had a meeting, and the Jewish people were there. I don't think that they were so offended by that. And uh, the, the liberals, the liberal Presbyterians and Methodists, they weren't so offended. But of all things, the Baptists, they didn't like that. I can't believe it. They objected, and from whatever happened, the, the fathers of the town said, you're going to have to go, and so we got kicked out. We're not allowed to use the building anymore because we preached that. There's only one gospel, and there's only one Savior. But of course the Lord brought blessing <laughs> upon that, and they found a beautiful property there in Columbia, and now there's a, just a gorgeous facility there, and the church is just burgeoning and growing. The Lord is blessing, blessing that work uh, wonderfully. And so we can only be happy, but they had to stand on their hind feet and say, we don't really care whether you like that or not. It's the truth, and we cannot any more deny that than we can uh, commit suicide. It's just uh, inconceivable. Salvation is through Jesus alone. There is only one name given under heaven among men, whereby we must be saved, Jesus Christ. Paul writes to the Galatians that anyone who teaches otherwise is damned. There are curses in the Bible. Let such a one, Paul says, be damned. That's strong language, but uh, that's the worst, the worst sin, apparently, that you can commit. It's really a sin against the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit comes as the one who makes possible belief in the only Savior. And then when we say there is another way of salvation, we're basically saying to the Holy Spirit, you're wasting your time. We don't need you. That's why it's the unpardonable sin. That's why it's the sin against God himself. And uh, that's why such a person who teaches that needs to be damned. And those Baptists in Columbia really are going to have to have something to answer for someday that they didn't stand up and support the Orthodox Presbyterian Church at that time. And the conclusion is that all believers are spiritually united. Here we're speaking about the church as invisible. Now, (laughs) it doesn't mean you can't see it. It just means that that aspect or that dimension of the church is not always visible to us. We cannot really see who true believers are. My wife, I take to be my sister in the Lord. (laughs) But God has not revealed her election to me. She stands alongside of me and testifies that she believes in Jesus Christ and I take her not only as my wife but as my sister in the Lord. And I take you as my brothers and sisters in the Lord. And when I'm preaching, I pronounce the benediction. I don't say uh, the blessing of God upon all you real Christians out there. (laughs) We we don't work that way. We have to deal with the visible church, the church as it appears before us, those who profess faith in Jesus Christ together with their children. They are the church. But we we must not uh, uh, also avoid knowing that uh, those who are truly regenerate, those who are members of the body of Christ, are united in a blessed family. They are one building. They are one body. Alive and alive forevermore because of their Savior. That leaves us with an inescapable fact that God's people in this world do appear as a mixed multitude. The church, as visible, does include those who are not truly regenerate. But we can't worry about that. You can look at some of those verses to see that. We can't really worry about that. We do pronounce the benediction upon the whole congregation. We do expect that all of the children of the covenant come to catechism class. Uh, We do pray with them at the bedside before they go to bed, and we bring them to church, and we raise them as the Lord's children, and we don't say... But, uh, of course, uh, we don't really know whether they're regenerate or not, or ever will be. We don't deal with that because of Deuteronomy 29:29, 29, 29, which says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And what is it that belongs to us and to our children? It is that salvation is through Christ, and it is not by works. It is not by the mere hearing of the gospel Not by mere association with God's people. Look at Judas. He was associated with the head of the church. It's not by receiving the sacraments. Little Josiah, Geyer, is not saved because I baptized him last Sunday. He was baptized last Sunday because God says he's mine. I want him identified as such. And we say, yes, Lord, So let there be no confusion, no one, adult or infant, is saved by means of water baptism or any other sacrament or any other physical presence in the church of God. Now, upon what is the gospel based? It's based on God's covenant. God has taken a sovereign initiative to save his people. He has established the way in which men are saved, and he has provided the means for their salvation. We read about this in the most wonderful gospel passage in the Old Testament. You know that, don't you? It's Genesis 15. If you ever want to preach a sermon on the gospel, you can't go anywhere better than there. It's so plain. Because in Genesis 15, God appears to Abraham in a dream, and God says to Abraham, take these animals and cut them in part, And place them side by side. And Abraham does that because Abraham had asked the question apparently before he went to bed that night. Lord, how can I know that there is a covenant? How can I know that you're there and that you're going to do the things that you said you're going to do and that we're not wasting our time here with this religion business? That was his question. And God answered that question in that dream. And God said, place the animals side by side. And Abraham's looking at the animals. He's driving away the vultures that were going to come and pick the pieces of the animals up because God's apparently going to do something with those pieces of animals. There they are, bleeding, cut apart. And then God comes to Abraham in the dream. And of course, Abraham didn't see God because no man can see God. For he is a spirit and has not a body like men as our catechism for young children said, But he came in a symbol. He came in a symbol of a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch. It was, of course, the Shekinah or the shekinah, as it's sometimes improperly pronounced. It was the brightness. It was, it was the aura. It, it was the presence of God. You, you could smell him. You could sense him, even though you couldn't see him. And Abraham was really scared silly. He was just very quiet to see what would happen. And that smoking firepot, which of course, is the cloud by day, and, and, the, and the blazing torch, which of course, is the pillar of fire by night, it was just God was there. And God went down. and he moved between those bleeding pieces of animal, animals. And that day, God cut covenant with you in the person of Abraham, your father. And God said, you want to know how you can trust me? You want to know for sure how it is that Jesus is the only Savior of sinners? You want to know how it is that there is one covenant of grace and salvation and you can count on me to deliver everything that I have promised? Watch what I do. Almost cross my heart and hope to die. No, not almost, more. He did. He came to this earth. The Son of God, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, came to this earth and allowed His blessed body to be broken like those animals and His blood to be shed in order to secure covenant of grace and salvation for you and for them in the other rooms right now. That's what it's about, folks. It's as Palmer Robertson defines it, It's the best definition I've found yet, a bond in blood sovereignly administered. And all I can think of is Genesis 15, a bond in blood sovereignly administered. There's Abraham with his dropped jaw and his very silent tongue watching the bond in blood sovereignly administered before his believing eyes. Formal relationship, a bond defining the roles of the parties. In blood, the relationship extends to the ultimate issues of life and death. Sovereignly administered. God didn't ask Abraham, Would you like to have a little chat here, Abraham, see if we can work something out? Abraham, watch what I do. Imposed by one party on the other. And the party upon which the covenant is imposed is the, is the vassal party. And they jolly well better listen up when the suzerain, when the king says how it's going to work. And that's the other part of the covenant. It's not just that the vassals get a wonderful salvation by grace through faith but it is also by grace through faith that works itself out in love. And one of the main features of that covenant working itself out in love is the love that you do for them. You know what I mean when I'm talking about them? The ones that just left us 20 minutes ago. Them. You love them. When you say, sweetheart, I don't care she's 16, whether you want to go to church or not, it's a no-brainer. That is love. That is how you love and that is how you vassal covenant people fulfill your responsibility to the suzerain because the suzerain says, that 16-year-old girl, she's mine and you don't have any privilege to try to smooth out the trouble that's going to come when you make her go to church. She just goes. She just goes because she belongs there. Now, God's relationship with people is by way of covenant, and there are two basic covenants set forth in the scripture. The uh, first one is the covenant of works, and that's no longer in force. It's the uh, covenant that God made with Adam. He established it. You can read about it in Genesis 2. And he made it with all of us, the entire human race, all human critters are in Adam, not just uh, genetically, in the fact that we're in his loins, in that, uh, you know, when he had a child, Seth, and then that child had other children, that all human beings come from Adam. Not just that. God made Adam to be the federal head of the whole human race. And when Adam fell in that covenant of works and disobeyed God by eating of the tree of the forbidden fruit, the had the, the, the forbidden fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which, by the way, meant not uh, that if Adam would eat of it, he would get smart, It meant, of course, that if he would eat of it, he would be saying, I'll be the one that says what's smart. And if he doesn't eat of it, he would be saying, God will be the one that says what's smart. And he picked the wrong one. And so we've all fallen. We are all guilty and we are all depraved and we are all uh, polluted and we're all headed for hell. Uh, Now, all those who physically descend from Adam... Uh, are involved in that covenant of works. That excludes, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. He is not a member of that human race in that sense. He is truly human. But if he were not born of a virgin, then he too would be a sinner. And that would never do. Perfect obedience was required of uh, Adam. And if he would obey, he would receive life. That was implied because the curse was that if you eat, you will die. All the verses are in there, you can look them up. Now that covenant was violated, it was broken, and uh, is not anymore in force, and no one can be saved by it because it ain't there anymore. And hasn't been, I believe, since Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, or somewhere thereabouts. Now, I understand there is a discussion in the of Southern California that touches on this matter, and I don't want to go too deeply into that. And it may be possible that in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church we could have slightly different hermeneutical uh, understandings of uh, the way in which we phrase and work out all of these things, but I think fundamentally we have to say that the, the covenant of works is no longer viable. It's no longer a possibility. And in Romans uh, 2, verse uh, 13 is it, therefore those who obey the law will be declared just, Uh, Whatever that verse means, and we're fussing with that in the Philadelphia Presbytery in connection with the Kinnaird uh, trial, and it's coming before the General Assembly as well. So we've got it in both of our presbyteries. Whatever is meant by that verse, it certainly doesn't mean that, oh, uh, God said, I forgot to tell you, you can pick either covenant, either grace or works. If you don't go with the grace one, you can try the works one. And if any of you can pull off the works one, then you'll be in in glory too. Uh, It certainly doesn't mean that, uh, because that covenant... Has been broken, and uh, god didn 't say i 'll give you two out of three. The covenant of grace is established by God, and you can read about it in Genesis 3:15. that comes just a little bit after three five, doesn 't it? When, is it three: five when Adam eats somewhere around in there. At 3.15 God says i 'm going to do something about this deplorable situation, and i 'm going to send a seed of the woman. And uh, that seed is going to defeat the the seed of the serpent. In fact, it's going to destroy the the head of the serpent, even though his heel is going to be bruised. And I'm going to have a redeemed community. And uh, all mankind uh, that are in Christ are included in that covenant of grace. That entire people from Garden of Eden until the end of time, all of God's elect are in that covenant of grace and salvation. They are in Christ and they will be redeemed. Christ is their representative. As in Adam, all die. There the all is all all. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. That second all is a qualified all. Not all all. That is not all people. We don't agree with Karl Barth, who says that Christ is the Savior of the world, and sinners, and all are therefore saved. We don't agree with that. And we don't agree with the Arminians who say Christ is the potential Savior of all and it depends on us to decide whether we want it or not. Not that. The all in Romans 5 when we read all in Christ uh, 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 as an Adam will die even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Of course that all is all that are in him. Every last elect person in Christ will be saved. You can bank on it. Remember Genesis 15? God moving between the pieces. He will lose none of his sheep. That's why we believe in uh, limited atonement and the other aspects of TULIP. The covenant bond is not physical descent from Christ. Of course, it is union with Christ, it is adoption, it is having been placed in his family, in his body, in his building, in his church, united to Christ. Remember John Murray taught me this. When, when I took uh, uh, theology from John Murray, it, it, the point was made so very powerfully. When we talk about the ordo salutis, Huh? Historia salutis, you know what that is, the history of salvation, that's what God has done, the great transactions of grace that God has accomplished in history, in Jesus Christ primarily, for the salvation of his people. That's Historia salutis. But we also believe Ordo salutis, the order of salvation. How is salvation ordered? To put it another way, how is it applied to the elect? How does it come to us? Because it jolly well had better come to us. It can't just... Be over there, we can't just stand off and say, That's a fine thing that you did, God. I wonder if it actually happens for anybody. It can't be that way. It needs to be applied. And when John Murray was teaching us how it's applied through eternal election and regeneration and uh, uh, conversion and justification, sanctification and adoption and glorification, he said, Don't get too screwed up here in your mind about all these shuns. The main thing is that they're all. United to Christ, these people. That's the heart of it. And you have to see en Christo, like Paul uses it in Ephesians. Read the book of Ephesians and take your little highlighter, if you want to do that with your Bible, and and highlight every time it says in Christ. There are a whole bunch of them in there. There's even one place where Paul stumbles over it. He puts two in Christ's in the same clause. It's almost as though he forgot that he already said that. (laughs) And he says, these are in Christ, that something must happen in Christ. And it's because that is so critical. Union with Christ is the heart of the application of redemption, is the heart of the covenant bond. But for us, it's faith that is required, not works. We don't say, God doesn't say, "Now I want you to believe in Jesus and behave yourself. For... Salvation, only faith, union with Christ is needed to secure that. In other words, we come to God not with anything in our hands and that's what we must teach our children. That it's not that you have to believe in Jesus and go to church. It's this, that when we have true faith in Jesus, then we are people who have been received changed hearts. And it isn't that we have to plead with those new hearts to care about obedience to God. That's what those new hearts do. And that's why Paul says, how come I keep sinning then? And he says, this is really, really troubling me, O wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this miserable situation? I don't want to sin, but I keep doing it. And he says, I thank God through my Lord Jesus Christ. He just keeps clinging to that gospel hope and that gospel promise. And he keeps repenting. And he keeps on keeping on. That's why John, in his epistle, writes that fantastic statement that blows everybody away and has the translators doing backflips, trying to make it logical. He that is born of God sins not, writes John. And the translators, they see that's what the Greek says. He that is born of God doesn't sin. And they say, well, that can't be. (laughs) Of course we do. So what are we going to do with this revolting situation? We don't want to have lies in the Bible. So they fiddle with it. You know what they do, Roger? You know what some of the translations put in there? He that is born of God doesn't. They add some words. Yeah, to continue to sin. (laughs) You're taking care of that mystery. Boy, that was close. We almost had God lying. But now we've we've helped him out. But I say, uh, please don't. Please don't help him out. I think I understand what he's saying. I think that what he's saying is that my people, these people for whom I sent Jesus, my redeemed people, they don't sin. Now watch yourself, Tyson. Is this some new perfectionistic Orthodox Presbyterian cult that you're starting? No. What John means is there's a seed. huh? A seed of life. A seed of obedience. It's what Ezekiel and Jeremiah are talking about when God says, I'll put my spirit within them and they will keep my commandments. That's why fruit in your life, that's why when you obey the Lord, it becomes such a tremendous, invigorating, encouraging piece of assurance to you. Because you say, oh Lord, I did the right thing. (laughs) I don't usually. But boy, you must be at work in my life. And I thank you for that. And that's what John is getting at. When he says, he that is born of God doesn't sin, he doesn't mean that we don't ever sin. He means that we've got new hearts. Not hearts that someday will be new, but new hearts now that are still in this flesh. And so we're going to, until the second coming of Christ, until the end of the world, or until our death, we're going to have to struggle like Paul did against sin. And we're going to have to repent and we're going to have to keep coming back to God and begging His pardon and using the means of grace and keep on keeping on. But the day is going to come. Isn't there going to be something in heaven? You're not going to do any sinning at all. None whatsoever. And John John will be up there too. (laughs) Up there, out there, wherever it is. And John's going to say, I told you. See? I told you. And it started even back there when you were in the flesh. That new principle, that new life, that new birth. Only now it's finally come into full completion. And what does this have to do with the covenant? It has this to do with the covenant. We have to communicate this to our children. Otherwise we become fetius and we become antinomians and we get all screwed up and and our children get the idea that being a Christian is trying real hard to be good. We have to stop any way we can communicating that to our children. And we have to keep hammering away the only way that you can be ever accepted in God's sight is because of your Savior, Jesus. He alone takes you there. And when you believe that, and when you trust in that Jesus and you say, I want to do it God's way, then that will show that you're, you're, kind of, you're really new inside. And so then when you sin, I'm not going to say, well, now that's it. You're supposed to be a Christian in this home, and if you carry on this way, I'm going to take you to a Billy Graham meeting so that you can get saved. That's not, it's not what we say to our kids. We say to our kids, patiently, sit down, sweetheart, that's wrong. You have to stop doing that. May I pray for you? And you come to God and you say, but Lord, we're coming to you because John said when, when we're born of God, we don't sin. We don't want to sin and someday we won't sin ever. And, and when our kids grasp that and when they catch that, it's going to be, they're going to be different. And then instead of struggling and getting all twisted out of joint and saying, why am I so bad? And why do we keep doing bad stuff? They're going to say, oh God, thank you that I don't want to do that. Help me to, to walk in, in your paths. Well, it's always been that way, you know. Some people think that the Old Testament saints were saved by works. And the New Testament saints are saved by grace. Taint it true. It's that in the Old Testament, the church was kind of in kindergarten. And when you're in kindergarten, you don't say to the kid, well, let's sit down and chat about this problem and I'll get your ideas on it and we'll work something out. You have a t-shirt, don't you, moms? And it says, because I'm the mom, that's why. And that's what God says in the Old Testament. Because I'm the God, that's why. That's what's going on. And with, for that young church, God just makes commandments and prescriptions and requirements. And what does David say about those commandments and those prescriptions and those requirements in Psalm 119, which has, by the way, how many verses? 175. Do you know how many of those 175 words, con- verses contain a word like law, commandment, precepts, ways, or synonyms? 171 of them, to my count. Only four verses don't have it. And David says in almost all of those verses, over and again, I love your commandments. That's a kindergartner that says, I'm glad I have a mommy that makes me do the right stuff. That's what David says. But David is not saying, and if I deliver, God will like me. David doesn't deliver. Yeah, Bill. Five minutes, left. Five minutes left. Thank you. You better do questions then. Um, how was Abraham saved by grace? Look at Genesis seventeen one through eight. You'll see the covenant sovereignly administered, given to Abraham. Gospel. Well, I'm just going to skip over this stuff because we need to get to the to questions on discussions. I've used up too much time in the introduction this morning. I'll try to be, uh, behave myself <laughs> tomorrow. Uh, where, here are the three questions. Where would you put the division between the two major parts of the Bible? Would you, there are two major parts of the Bible. Would you put it between Genesis 3.6 and Genesis 3.7 or between Matthew Malachi 4.6 And Matthew 1, 1. And why do you answer as you do? Pick one. Oh, we got a... This is great. Anybody want to try it? You better get the right one because you don't have a lot of time to explain it. She's going to try. Okay. I'll choose Genesis 3, 6 and Genesis 3 7, because you said so. <laughs> but seriously, after your explanation of it. Uh, um, please don't do it because I said. You, no, no, I no, take but it that you. After your you, explanation and your teaching on it, teaching? I see it in a new way. Yeah. Hold it closer, okay. Um, I see that in a new way, and I see that as, um, you know, the beginning of the covenant or the understanding of the covenant. Yes. And so between Malachi uh, 4 6 and Matthew 1 1, there's no biggie. We're moving, it is a biggie in the sense that we're going to move now into the covenant of fulfillment, but it's the, still a part of the covenant of grace, which got started way back in Eden. So, yeah, that's the major division. Okay? Second one How many churches have there been from the time of Abraham until the present time, thinking in terms of time, not geography? And, given your answer, what syllogism? You know that syllogism? Socrates, uh, all men are mortals, Socrates was a man, therefore Socrates was a mortal. That's a syllogism. What syllogism can you construct that provides an incontrovertible (laughs) argument for infant baptism? Can anybody do it? How many churches have there been? And after you answer that with hopefully the right answer, construct the syllogism. If you cough, you get the mic. Mark, do you want to try it? How many churches have there been from Abraham until now? And depending upon your answer, can you then construct an inconvertible inconvertible argument for infant baptism that is a syllogism? Uh, One church. All right, you got a good start. Is that clear? Now give me your syllogism. Make that the major premise then. Um... Well, I think Abraham is our father in the faith. Abraham believed the gospel, his household received the covenant sign. Therefore, we believe in the same gospel and our household should receive the covenant sign. Amen. I was going to put it a little bit different, but it's the same, it's the same idea. There is one church. God wants the members of that and, and God right. wants the members of that one church uh, to receive the sign of membership in that church. Our children are members of that church. Therefore, it follows, doesn't it? If you buy one and two, three has to follow. You have to put the sign on them. Okay? Uh, Last question. Upon whom does responsibility principally rest? Upon us Presbyterians to identify a verse mandating infant baptism or upon our Baptist brethren to identify a verse removing children from the covenant? This is an easy one. Pick one. Here's, here's an answer up here. The Baptists principally... You got it. The, the Baptists are the ones who need to provide something that says they are out. Amen. They've got to tell us where God says, I kicked, I used to be in, but now I kicked them out. And we don't need to let them challenge us to provide them with a verse saying that God put them in. <laughs> That he put him in is throughout. Okay, that's it for today. Now you have a a break, and then we come back and we do music. 15 minute break. 15 minute break. Thank you.